Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Just sitting around here, drinking my cup of coffee, the new one from Hotshot Brewery, the Sawdust Blend. Ooh, yeah, it's good shit. Yeah. So, Hotshot Brewery, thanks for uh, sending me a bag oak new roast. It is good shit. Anyways, you guys can go uh, get yourself some as well. So, just swing over to www.hotshotbrewery.com and pick yourself up the new blend, the Sawdust. It's like chocolatey and nutty. It's buttery. It's delicious. Good winter warmer for the off season. Check them out. You can also pick up some uh, Spotfire blend or some Scratch Line or some Initial Attack or some you know Night Shift Espresso. It's good shit. And it's good coffee for a good cause. A portion of their proceeds goes to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. So go over to, once again, www.hotshotbrewing.com and check out their full line of apparel all of their coffee blends, and all those tools of the trade to help you get yourself going in the morning. It's good stuff. Another sponsor of ours is going to be the Smoky Generation, also known as the American Wildfire Experience. They've got some pretty cool stuff up there. Basically what it is is a digital and oral storytelling platform for all of the history of firefighting up to the 1940s. It's pretty amazing stuff. Definitely go and check them out. And uh, they also do good stuff for the people out in the field currently, actually. Those guys and girls that uh, happen to have an awesome story or happen to be a excellent writer or a photographer or maybe even a cinematographer. Shit, even a blogger. Definitely go and check them out. Go talk to Bethany. Go uh, hit up the Smoky Generation because they offer some grants for our folks out there in the field. Yeah, they have uh, teamed up with... Mystery Ranch and Water Axe Pumps to help facilitate some of these grants for our people out there in the field. Tell your amazing stories. Share them with the world. Share them with the Smoky Generation. Bethany, you run an awesome organization, and I just want to say thank you for that. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast, episode number 18. Damn, it's about that time, isn't it? Yeah, it's about time for crews to start getting laid off, start uh, hibernation mode, if you will, or just break out those shred sticks. I know that Colorado and uh, Montana, they're already starting to get a base. So bring out those, uh, those POW sticks and start shredding, getting prepped. Anyways, to all those crews that are getting laid off, I hope you guys have a good winter. And uh, yeah, I'll definitely keep this going. So you guys have something to keep you engaged in the wildland fire community over the winter. Make sure you guys keep in touch with each other. I know that this time of year, well, uh, it gets a little bit uh, weird. You definitely uh, lose touch with your friends and your other family, the fire family. So definitely keep in contact with each other. Check up on each other. Make sure everybody's doing good. To those crews that are going down to SoCal, I know that Santa Ana's season has just begun. At least uh, the Santa Ana's have just reared the ugly heads down in California just this week. And uh, yeah, to all of my fellow brothers and sisters down there, be safe. Keep your head on a swivel. Anyways, today on the show, I've got John Freeman. He is the captain of Columbine Wildland Fire Module, a WFM. It's a Type 1 WFM based out of San Juan. Yeah, it's it sounds like he's probably a pretty cool program now. A lot of people don't know what WFMs are, so 
this uh, show's title is going to be. WTF is a WFM. John's a good dude. He got in a fire in about 2001, and he's worked for just about every agency under the book. So, Parky, Forest Service, and the BLM. So, he's got a lot of experience, and uh, he's also got his master's degree in fire ecology. So, he knows what he's doing. So, yeah, we're going to talk about everything about a WFM. We're going to talk about the duties and responsibilities of a WFM. The day-to-day operations, what they do in the field on large fires, even small fires. They have a different objective, and it's pretty interesting to hear. So, definitely some tips and tricks as to uh, getting picked up for the next round of hiring. And, uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Welcome to the Anchor Point. (laughs) Let's try this again. I'm just going to say WFM. Yeah. All right. Fourth chime's a charm. Yes, man. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got John Freeman from Columbine WFM. So, John, what's up, man? Not a lot. Season's over. Leaves are changing. Yeah. Winter's here. It's here. It's definitely here. It's uh, about to snow in my neck of the woods. I don't know about yours, but uh, yeah. Yep. Foot in the high country this weekend. We'll see. Dang. You guys are getting a yep. foot of snow. They're, they're talking about it. Yeah, we're uh, forecasted for, I think, four inches at lake level. Mm-hmm. I'm getting in the van and driving south tomorrow. <laughs> Just get out of Dodge while you can, huh? Yep. Nice, man. So we're here today to talk about wildfire modules, right? So yep. explain what a WFM is. Excellent question. And thanks again for having me, man. I yeah, appreciate man. the opportunity and, and getting the word out. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the language is, is tough because it's, it's actually evolving, too. Back in the day, we were called fire use modules, and people were going to fire use fires, and now that's all gone. So now it's, it's wildland fire modules. So, um, yeah, I am the, the captain of, of Columbine Wildland Fire Module, which is a 10-person crew based on the San Juan National Forest. Oops, standby one. Sorry, dude. So. Yep, perfect. All right, man. So uh, what what... What the heck is a wildland fire module? Excellent question. <laughs> um, <laughs> man, I, I, um, I've been in the, in the wildland fire module world since about 2008. So it, it seems common sense to me, but it's still at least on a daily basis. We show up somewhere and a team, an FMO, a forest supervisor, um, people really have no idea. So I appreciate you giving me the chance to come on and, and explain this a little bit. Yeah, man. Thanks uh, for being on the show. No, happy to. Um, so I guess at its simplest, you know, the, the average, you know, fire resource, a hotshot crew, an engine, a, a smoke jumper, a, a dozer, whatever, you know, it, at its core, its job is to suppress fires more or less if we're not prescribed burning. So, um, we are literally the opposite of that. I think success for us is, is number of acres we can, we can get burned. So, um, I think, Early days, kind of 1996 or so, the DOI, mostly National Park Service, kind of came up with the idea of, you know, right tool for the right job. If we're if we're trying to manage fires, back then it was called fire use as opposed to, and fire use modules as opposed to wildland fire modules. Um, you know, we don't necessarily need a, a hot shot crew to come in and produce line. We don't need an engine to come in and, and spray water. We need a small group of highly skilled, experienced folks whose focus is kind of getting fire out onto the landscape. And so they kind of invented this concept of, of fire use of, of managing fire to do, to do good. So, um, 
you know, the concept has evolved over time to, to what it is today, but I'd say for the last, you know, decade, decade and a half, um, kind of, kind of the core idea of a wildland fire module is, is kind of been set. So, um, you know, picture uh, officially we're, we're seven to 10. So picture, you know, two trucks full of folks, a, a trailer full of backcountry equipment, kind of some more techie gear, um, things that make us a hundred percent self-sufficient getting thrown out into the wilderness or, you know, a chunk of ground where uh, a forest, a park is trying to apply fire to the landscape, if that makes sense. Um, so get, you got to erase that idea, that old school concept of, of suppress everything and think about right place, right time. Let's get more fire on the landscape. And, and that's our specialty. So basically improving the ecology and uh, reintroducing that fire element to the natural uh, surroundings. Yeah, you got it. I think, you know, we've got an, an NWG, NWCG steering document, just like, you know, there's a hotshot operations guide. There's a wildland fire module operations guide and, and right in there kind of first paragraph it talks about um helping fire fulfill its natural historic role on the landscape and, and that's what we do that's awesome man so not a lot of people know about these programs out there and it's kind of like one of those underground programs if you will there's not a lot of light that's been shed on it so i appreciate you being on the show and talking about it man no happy to it's it's one of those things that you know i think you could you could ask most folks that work on modules today how they got to where they got and you know everybody was doing some traditional job uh in fire they're on a crew they're on a helicopter whatever and then you know they got exposed they were on a fire that a module was on and and that's that's it it got its its hooks into us and and we've never looked back so the minute i discovered it it was i knew this was what i was going to do forever nice man so speaking of since we're on that topic man what's your story how many years of fire you got in you and uh how did you become the soup of this wfm uh yeah so i you know, considering we're, we're kind of the, the oddball kind of non-traditional resource, I definitely have that oddball non-traditional background. Um, I got into fire in 2001 when I was in college. So, um, I was just kind of bouncing around through life. I didn't really have a, have a grand plan. I just knew I wasn't going to have a desk job when I grew up. So, um, getting a degree in, uh, natural resource conservation, took an internship in Colorado that summer, making eight bucks a day, which I thought was pretty sweet at the time. Um, I did get free housing though. So, uh, and, uh, you know, I was doing everything. I worked at a little national park. I was doing trails work and wildlife stuff. And, you know, back then it was the kind of militia concept was uh, a little more standard ops, I guess. And so I, you know, they threw me into one thirty, one ninety. Um, I got on two fires that summer. One was a single tree juniper. And the next one was, uh, like 10 acres of sage. It had a couple seats on it. And man, the minute that thing was flying over, I was, I was hooked. So kind of walked away from the rest of it at that point and knew new fire was going to be the thing for me. So, uh, bounced around, still kind of doing the, the, the militia thing for a few years, uh, did a few seasons with the park service, uh, ended up back in grad school. Actually, I went to Colorado state for a couple of summers. I took a couple years off in the mid two thousands. And then, um, yeah, first true exposure to modules was was 2008 uh, in the Black Hills. I worked there for a few seasons um, as a permanent. Um, and and Black Hills module actually great, really solid Type One module there. It's still in existence. Um, those guys have been doing it for a long time. They've been doing it really well. And it was you know shift one with them. I was like this this is it. You know we ended up on the on the Shoshone on on the gun barrel. Uh, 
backcountry kind of cabin structure pro they more or less gave us uh the remote division of the fire and just said have at it and we were just out there for two weeks doing our thing and and i knew that was it so um hung out there for a few seasons uh went over to the bridger teton um kind of pre prior to them having a module was there to kind of actually build that one from the ground up which was super cool um kind of turning a, a fuels crew into a module which um I left in 2014. I think the next year they went type one. Um, but I was there for the first few Teton module assignments. Also some super cool ones, man, like rafting trips down the rogue and flying into the backcountry in Idaho. Like, you know, just, just that typical module stuff that it, it's hard to walk away from. So, uh, spent a few years there, ended up in Tucson, Arizona. The national park service has a type one module down there known as Saguaro, uh, was there until last year, um, kind of between then and now I spent a couple winters on the East coast too. There's another national park service module there called great smoky based at great smoky mountains national park. Um, and I landed in the position I'm in now just this past April. So, um, been with the park service for a really long time, a couple seasonal jobs back in the day with the forest, but kind of landed here on the San Juan in April and, and been loving it. Nice, man. Well, congratulations on your new spot, man. Thank you. Yeah. So that's a pretty epic story about how you uh, became the module leader over there at Columbine, man. It's pretty cool. And uh, everybody's got like a similar story. But what was your like major passion for wildfire modules? Like what was like what is like some of the major differences between, say, per se, a hotshot crew versus a wildland fire module? Sure. Yeah. And and that's, you know, that's kind of at its core, I guess I, I touched on it a second ago. And that's that you know, it's, and it's nothing to take away from those traditional fire resources. You know, my, my ideal candidate for a job with us is someone who's got that traditional kind of hot shop background and work ethic. So, um, you know, having dabbled with crews and engines and helicopters in my early days, you know, I was, I was into it, I was loving it, but it just felt like something was missing and I didn't really know what. And I guess it was when I first got, uh, exposed to modules, I realized like, you know, a module has all those same kind of skills the operational background to to do standard suppression if needed and and we still get thrown into that once in a while but it's the fact that we will show up on a fire sometimes not even it'll be a single tree and they don't know what they want to do with it but we're we're kind of tasked with creating the end state Um, we don't show up on a fire and get told hey you're in division whatever help them go put it out normally um you know we we kind of get to design the outcome and generally that outcome is more fire on the landscape so it's to me it's just you know day to day it's it's something different every day and we also get to i don't want to say like use our brains but we definitely get tasked with a little more of that kind of long-term planning and, and and what to me is the more interesting side of fire just um you know anchor flank and pinch is is great it has to happen sometimes when when we can allow fire to burn on the landscape, but when we can, they call us. And to me, that's the most interesting stuff we do. I think, uh, you know, we're seeing it more and more. I think even traditional suppression based fire jobs, you know, those folks are seeing that the answer isn't suppress, 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 like it was maybe 10 years ago. We're asking more questions like, Hey, can we, can we steer it that direction? Can we point protect in the neighborhood and let it burn into the wilderness? And that's our bread and butter. And, and to me, it's, something different every day and it's something exciting every day 
Nice, man. So the next question is, um, well, we're kind of on the topic already, and we kind of described it a little bit, but I want to go really into the details of it, right? So yep. the question of the day is, and this is what the title of the episode is going to be, is WTF isn't WFM. <laughs> so what I mean by that uh, is, like, what is like the major differences in uh, like your crew life? Like, What is your day-to-day duties? What are some unique facets of a wildland fire module? Sure. Great, great question. Um, and I love the title, by the way, I'm going to eat that. <laughs> uh, so, right. And I guess I'll start just by saying there are a lot of similarities too. You know, if you've, if, you know, if, if you get hired by us and you, you show up in Durango next spring, um, and all you've ever done is work on a hotshot crew, you're still going to show up to a duty station. There's still going to be, you know, PT, sit report, six minutes, briefing, whatever, jump in the trucks that look familiar. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are the same, but, um, you know, once the call comes in and we're headed to a fire, that's where things get, get a little weird, I guess. (laughs) Um, so if you, you know, and and people can Google it, look up the document that shows all the, you know, the, the quals we have to carry, the gear we have to carry, you know, if they want more details about what we're talking about today, but, um, you know, Day to day, I would say the major difference in it, and this applies all the way on down to the kind of the rookie crew member, is that um, that that hierarchy, that structure that you're used to seeing on a on a crew, where you know I'm a crew member, I work for a senior who works for a squaddy. Like we've got that; it's built in. You can look at our org chart, but it that crumbles almost on a daily basis when we get assigned somewhere. I ask, you know, our our entry level GS fours are often off on their own, like with an iPad, like getting weather, submitting a spot request, pulling the spot request, reading it over the radio to everybody. My temp five, who's got one year of experiences is doing lookout stuff, getting weather intel. Like we just get thrown a million different directions. So, um, the idea of that kind of, you know, you know, me and my Pulaski are going to go, go dig on my piece of line. And I'm standing next to two other people doing the same thing is, is, it happens for us, but it's, it's pretty rare. Um, you know, I've got myself plus nine, that's a fully staffed module. And oftentimes we've got, you know, a 4,000 acre, 5,000 acre fire that we're managing and it's just us. So, uh, there's a, a lot more freelance, a lot more freedom, um, a lot more required of everybody to sort of operate independently and, and get stuff done. So, um, you know, it's not it's not a great place to, to come if you're new to fire because you're not going to learn the basics. It's going to be expected that you've already got that background, and we're we're kind of throwing you into the deep end, and it's it's sink or swim a lot of times. So, being out in the middle of nowhere, I'm assuming that you guys get flown into some knife ridge in the middle of nowhere and start doing fire observations. Is that pretty much a uh, typical task that you guys are uh, assigned to on a fire? Yeah. And I, and I wish I could say that there was a, you know, a a typical sort of day to day, I guess that, you know, the easiest thing to do is maybe just kind of describe a couple of the, the more, I guess, module style fires, you know, we've been to. So, um, that the one I mentioned on the rogue is a great example. So that was the big windy complex rogue Siskiyou, I think 2013. Um, there's like a hundred thousand acre fire. There's divisions, there's crews everywhere, like chainsaws buzzing in the distance. Well, the module arrives to ICP, checks in, gets told, Hey, there's a remote division down the river. We know you guys are self-sufficient. You and your gear and your Yeti coolers are going to get rafted in and do point protection on some structures out there. See in three weeks. So, um, 
in in that and that is not at all atypical that's that's you know the rafting trip was pretty sweet we don't do that every day but um the idea of them being able to just give us a remote division and forget about it is is pretty typical or just a like a type three type four fire just they give it to us and and we handle it so um it's not you know a lot of folks think it is just going to be simply the kind of the monitoring the watching letting it go and that's that can be a part of it, but there's a lot of times it's, it's very operationally based too. Um, you know, we're required to carry a task force leader, RXP2, several IC4s, FOBs, FEMOs, fire bosses, the, the whole thing. So um, a lot of times it is very active and less, less passive. I don't want to give the impression it's just a lot of sitting and watching, but sometimes it is. I mean, sometimes you get into those situations where you have to monitor, but uh, that's kind of expected yep. out of everybody, whether you're on an engine yep. or a wildland fire module. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool that, that it's pretty hands-off. We don't often have, you know, a, a division or an, an IC3 kind of lording over us. They, there's a lot of trust placed in us to just kind of handle our own business, which is great. That's pretty cool. You guys have the operational independence to do that stuff and make decisions on your own and what's best for the uh, particular situation that you guys are placed in. So that's yep. definitely pretty unique. Yeah. I think the, the, I think we spent a big, our biggest chunk of time this summer on the Lincoln national forest in New Mexico. And that was another similar situation. It was a, uh, that was a single tree on a remote part of one of their districts. They, didn't have a lot of experience managing fires, but like a lot of forests are doing these days, it was like, hey, it's PL2, it's not super hot and dry, do we want to manage this? And the answer was yes, and so what do you do? You call a wildland fire module. So, you know, we drove down, I, I did an in-briefing with the, the duty officer, their local AFMO, um, district ranger, forest supervisor, and they kind of said, look, you guys are the pros at this stuff, like go out there, spin around it come up with a plan. So, um, you know, their local engine captain transitioned the fire to me that afternoon. And I think 48 hours later between my assistant and I, we came up with the plan to build a 5,000 acre box around that single tree, what we needed for resources, logistical support and a plan. And, and we went for it, you know, the, the forest was on board and they just said, go for it. So over the next month, we mostly just the module, we had a couple hotshot crews for a few days and, a couple engines as well, but we, you know, took that single tree and, and put 5,000 acres of both forest and there was some private land in there. We had support to burn, got all that done for them and did it with little to no support, just us out there camped on this thing. It was, it was super fun. And, you know, at the end of it, you actually felt like you did something good getting, getting that many acres burned. That's pretty awesome, man. You guys get to take a single tree and drag it out to, well, not drag it out, but improve that that whole ecosystem to 5,000 acres, man, that's no small feat. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's, it's super challenging. It's, you know, you, you get to sort of fall back on some of those suppression skills. Like, Hey, we did go, you know, in spots we didn't even put in lines. We just used fuel transitions, but other places, you know, prepped some roads, fired out some roads and, and made it happen. Used drones and did some aerial PSD with drones. Like, um, it's just that kind of non-traditional stuff that, that keeps me coming back and doing the module thing, man. It's it's something unique and different every assignment. So speaking of drones and stuff, man, uh, I understand that Wildland Fire modules, they get to play with some of the most like high-tech, awesome, cool gadgets that are out there and that are available to Wildland Fires. Is that pretty much true? I I would I would say so. Yeah, I think, you know, the folks at 
I guess it's not MTDC anymore, but the, the folks in Missoula that are, you know, focused on that technology development stuff do often make calls our direction, which is, which is pretty sweet. Um, you know, several years ago when I was down in Tucson, they, um, they had, uh, uh, I guess it was like a satellite Wi-Fi program. They, they basically took all these little satellite Wi-Fi systems and said, Hey, are these, are these a rugged enough to handle the wildland fire environment? B, you know, do they, do they function well? Are they speedy enough? And they just gave a bunch of them to us and said, go use them all summer. So, you know, we're, yeah, we, I think we spent a month in Grand Teton National Park that, that summer sitting up in the middle of nowhere, pop open this little box that's, you know, the size of a paperback book, hit go. And suddenly we've got Wi-Fi in the backcountry, and we're same, like doing our own spot requests and sending them pictures and intel back to the FMO and yeah, super cool. Uh, but yeah, I would say without question, the, the biggest, um, most significant advancement we're making across the board in wildland fire, especially technology wise is, is UAS is drones. And there's one sitting right next to me on my desk right now. We, um, got hooked into that program late last year. And, um, when I was with department of interior and I brought that over here to the San Juan and we're, we're getting ready to ramp up pretty, pretty big with, with that. It's, it's a game changer, man. That's pretty cool. You guys get to use the whole drone program too. Cause that's, that's like invaluable data to, ICP or whoever's running the fire, whoever's managing that fire per se, even you guys, because you can have like real time data as to what the fire's doing when it's doing it. Yep. There's the, no time delay, you know? Oh, I, absolutely. The, the number of folks that you run into and it's, and it's not just us, you know, the other programs that are using drones have said the same thing and it's, you know, you show up somewhere and people haven't been exposed to it and they think you're just there with this toy that's, you know, not really going to get anything done. It's, it's fun, but what's it really doing for me? And I'm to the point now where I'm like, rarely does a shift go by that I can't think of a use for the drone to either a reduce costs or B absolutely reduce exposure to, to firefighters. So, um, you know, I, we'll, we'll see how quickly it comes around, but I, I would say within the next five to 10 years, you're going to, you're going to see one on every buggy. That's wild, man. And so what about some other high-tech stuff do you guys get to play with? Uh, I understand that sometimes uh, you guys are selected to go like set up repeaters or uh, remote automated weather service uh, devices, stuff like that. What else do you guys get to do? Yep. Yeah, I mean, you said it. We're, you know, because we're often on these fires that are more or less self-sufficient, like the the one down on the Lincoln, it was it was just us. We wanted a ROS on it, ordered a ROS. ROS came in a kit, set up the ROS. You know, it's sitting there next to our camp every day. So... Um, I think if there's, if there is a, a technology out there, the, the modules are interested in using it. It's, um, and I think you can, you can sort of picture us. And I think the, our, our ops guide might actually touch on this, but the idea is that we're kind of like miniature type three teams and that we're, we can show up, kind of own our own business, um, set up everything that needs to be set up and, and we're good. So, um, in terms of the technology side of things, yeah, we're, we're not traveling with the RAWs. We're not traveling with a repeater, but I think, um, I could pretty safely say most of the, the modules, especially the type ones with some, um, you know, some folks that have been around a while, absolutely have the, the skills and experience to be able to, to do all of that. And we're, I mean, at this point kind of touching on the, you know, the mini type three thing like that, the one on the Lincoln ramped up to that point when we had the crews and the engines helping out and it was, you know, one of my temp 
fives was sitting um, with the Wi-Fi hotspot, like cranking out GIS and making maps and QR codes. So the next day at briefing, like the shot soups are walking up and he's just like airdropping a maps and stuff that we were making in the woods. So, um, yeah, the efficiencies and the things we're looking for um, in terms of the technology side of things, it's it's all game changing. That's awesome, man. So you briefly touched on it there, too, um, with the whole type one status thing. And what exactly does that mean for a wildland fire module? Yeah. So, um, you know, similar to hand crews, right? Like the, you know, there, there are great hotshot crews and there are okay hotshot crews. And there, there are some type two crews or type two IA crews that are probably, you know, pulling the weight of a type one crew. So I don't want to get hooked on the fact that, you know, type one's better per se. But um, if you look at the ops guide, the, the amount of quals that we have to carry versus type two is, is pretty dramatically different. Um, but in terms of similarities, you know, the type one modules and the type two modules, both seven to 10 people, both self-sufficient, um, both carrying all of that equipment. Um, but it's just the, um, I guess the experience of the folks that you're bringing to the table. So I I mentioned earlier, the quals we have to bring, I think a a type two module technically only needs a, a crew boss and an IC five and a firing boss to you know, to actually status and, and go up national and, and get an assignment. Whereas like, you know, I have to be task force RXB2. My assistant has to be crew boss IC4. We need FOBSes. We need FEMOs, um, yada, yada, yada. So um, when you order a module and you get a type one, you know, you're bringing, bringing that to the table. So, um, you know, like, like I said, sometimes we do get thrown into fires that have nothing to do with module work. You know, sometimes you go up available nationally. It's a it's a roll of the dice. You end up on a huge type one suppression fire and they've just got you mopping up. And I'm not saying we're too good to mop up. I'm just saying right tool for the right job. Like, you know, do you really need seven to ten folks who can't really produce a ton of line out there with those quals just cold trailing? Doesn't make a ton of sense, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that totally makes sense, man. Like you're saying, right tool, right job. Yep. Yeah, so so when you guys show up to a fire, like uh, as far as uh, logistics, how is that handled, man? That's always been a curiosity of mine because you guys are often out in, well, let's be honest, the middle of freaking nowhere. So how do you guys yep. handle the self-sufficiency thing? Yeah, and I guess that's that's one of the big selling points for us, like, like the Lincoln orders us, they know we're going to be super low maintenance. You know, once, once they give us their leader's intent for what they're looking for, they can just drop us out there and forget about us. I conference call in and, you know, tell them what's going on and make sure they're happy and that's it. So, uh, so say we're sitting in Durango national, we get an order to, to region six. So what happens is, you know, I talk to dispatch, I, you know, get the orders. I see where we're going. I call that ordering unit, the forest, the team, whatever. And, my first question is always, do you want us to come self-sufficient? And um, what that looks like, and, and almost always they say yes, because it's easier for them. So, uh, I mean, just like everyone else, we're carrying all the camp equipment, but we also, in our one of our trailers, have like full-on kitchen. You know, we're talking like like stand-up grills, stoves, the whole nine yards, and then the, the coolers that'll, that'll hold all the, f- the fresh food for, um, normally we shop for a week, so... Uh, if we're doing a 14 day assignment at some point midstream, we'll either a send somebody into town or wherever to, to re up the groceries or uh, more often than not, actually, uh, anymore, the jump bases are so good at paracargo. We'll just ask for that. And they'll actually fly us in fresh food boxes, a la Alaska or, 
Um, you know, if you've ever gotten paracargo on a, on a wilderness fire, it's pretty great. We, uh, can sat phone straight to the jump base. Special requests are often honored. Um, and, uh, yeah, good to go. Seven more days of fresh food, you know? So it's, it's, it's pretty, um, kind of, kind of just one-stop shopping for the, for the ordering unit. It's, there's very little they need to do to support us once we get there. That's awesome, man. So you guys are just spiked out in the middle of nowhere and you guys are just basically doing your wildland fire stuff and you're going and eating fresh food boxes pretty much every night. Oh yeah. Why yeah, didn't I find 13. out about this like years and years and years ago? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's day 13. We're still eating steaks, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds great, man. Yeah. Which is wild because everybody like, oh yeah, you guys get to eat steaks on the fire. But you know, uh contrary to popular belief, it's actually more inexpensive for uh, running an operation like you guys do, where you guys get your fresh groceries and do fresh food boxes rather than doing, you know, prepackaged food or MREs or having the logistical effort of sling loads for hot buckets. So, yep, a- absolutely. It, it, it sells itself. And it's, it's just like the, the drone thing, man. Like people don't really know what, what the tool is until they use it and then they want to use it all the time. So I think the more we're out there doing good work, the, the more the program kind of sells itself. But like you said, there's, there's not many of us and, and we generally keep going to the same areas because the same, the same forests that know about us or parks that know about us just keep using us. And the ones that don't, don't yet anyway, not yet. Not until I find out. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So, um, when you guys are on the road, what is uh what is like one of the major things that you're expected from your rookies like or any crew member like what is what is like a day in the life of like going to a fire yep great question um and i think i touched on it a bit before just the kind of you know the the non-traditional uh work that we do definitely requires a, a kind of non-traditional attitude and that that comes from the from the bottom too so uh i guess you know, expectations coming in, I, I'd say both my, you know, and I think if you talk to different um, soups, you'd get different answers. But for me, uh, for my assistant and myself, like the, the fitness expectation is is through the roof. I, you know, we're definitely up there in the, you know, hot shot or smoke jumper sort of expectation of what, what we want fitness wise out of folks. Um, and then attitude wise as well. And just that sort of operational work ethic and background, I think that, that folks get from those those kind of mainstream fire jobs, like show up with all that and we can teach you the, the, the fire effects monitoring, the, the fobs type stuff. Like that's, that's all, all skill sets that are very easy to teach in our critical 40 training when the season starts. So, um, uh, I guess the, the way to summarize what the, you know, day to day looks like is, you know, you're in, you're on a ICP or a big fire camp and everybody's like lining out to go to dinner we're that crew that's like skirmish lined wandering up to the chow line in a big group. <laughs> uh, the, the, the get in line and, and dig mentality is, is definitely not one that I push with these guys. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a balance for sure to, to bring in a bunch of folks from, you know, from the GS four up through our seniors and our squaddies to the assistant, like to bring in folks at those various levels and just say, Hey, like, this is a, a group of seven to 10 folks. And I expect a ton from everybody and everybody to operate. And from day to day, you might just be swinging a tool, but the next day that like our GS fives are crew boss qualified and they're running the module a lot because I'm off doing a task force thing. And my assistant's doing firing somewhere like, um, the, the sort of 
I mean, the word module itself, you know, modular, like the, the parts are always moving and shifting. And if, um, if folks are coming in with an attitude that they need, you know, they need to be basically put in line and told what to do minute to minute, it's just not going to work. And I've, I've seen it not work. So, um, you know, it's incumbent on me to sort of give that leader's intent, just say like, this is the end state we're looking for. And then I expect like eight other people to scatter and get shit done. No, it makes sense, man. It sounds like you need a, a lot of operational independence. Uh, and the mentality you need is you need to be a self-starter and you need to be also self-disciplined as well. Exactly. And it's, you know, that, and, and that's why I can't stress enough, like coming in with that, the sort of operational background, but that, I guess the idea is just that people have that curiosity, you know, they want to do something a little more interesting, a little more exciting in terms of, you know, what they're doing day to day in fire. And, and I, I think if you asked any of my crew members, they'd tell you like, you're going to get more diversity and more interesting work. And you're going to be asked your opinion a lot more on a, on a wildland fire module than you would in, in a more traditional crew member job on an engine or a crew or something. So it's a lot less, you know, shut up and, you know, sit down or, and listen and pay attention. And it's more like, hey, what's your feedback on this? You're, you're trying to teach. There's a two-way street of uh, learning opportunity right there, it seems like. Absolutely. Yeah, there's uh, the, you know, the average shift is, you know, I'll keep going back to that fire on the Lincoln this summer. There were, there were GS4s and GS5s out there independently dragging a torch down one ridge alone and they were getting a call from my assistant for feedback and that person was was more or less tasked with like you know relaying how it was going what was happening was the operation safe and were they getting done what needed to get done it's a um you know it's a lot to ask of folks it's super challenging for them but you know it's like i said at the beginning it's kind of sink or swim but i think you know when the right folks are put in those situations they really thrive yeah, it seems like you get to see a lot of wild fire behavior, like pretty cool fire behavior. So you get a lot of uh, slides, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it still comes down to folks having that that background from you know from a few seasons on a on a more traditional resource. Like if you need to know what right looks like before you come here and see what you know unanchored you know fire spread all over the landscape looks like to know if what we're do- what we're doing is safe. I've definitely had a few looks from from temps in their first year, just like you you really want, you want me to do that? Okay, I'll do that. But <laughs> it's just wide eyed. Like you want me right. to do what? <laughs> yep. That's what, well, speaking of qualifications and everything like that, uh, what about the experience needed and the qualifications desired? So it is hiring season. Let's talk about getting picked up on a uh, wildland fire module. So what kind of quals are we looking for? What kind of uh, experience is desired from a typical wildland fire module? Yeah, great question. And I've, I've been answering that a bunch through hiring season. And, you know, I'm taking next week off and then we're, we're diving in deep to, to region two fire hire. So um, great timing. You know, all of our, our certs are actually, no, we've got another two days on the temp announcements. So there's still hope there. Um, but uh, yeah, so, you know, our, our announcements go out just like everyone else's do. They use the big kind of standardized position descriptions and announcement numbers. And you, you know, you pick Bayfield, Colorado for us, obviously, but, um, so the requirements, the minimum requirements are exactly the same. So, you know, for our entry level folks, all you're looking at is, is 90 days. And, you know, for the GS fives, the senior positions, it's FFT one and S two ninety, just like every other resource. So, um, that being said, 
you know, to be competitive for our jobs, especially our perm jobs, I'd say the bar is, is a fair bit higher. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, you're not going to be trying to get your first fire job and calling the, the jumper bases and, and getting much interest. They're going to tell you to, to go do something else for a few years and, and get that background. And I think we're, um, similar in that sense in that we can be a little choosy because well, a, like Durango is a great place to live and work, but also, um, you know, the, the work we're describing is pretty desirable. So we get pretty solid, um, certs, uh, I guess, you know, I just going off of the last few seasons and the folks I've worked with on the different modules, I'd say entry level, you know, it is possible, especially I think today there's more or less 40 modules. That's type one and two nationwide. So some of them are just starting there. Maybe they don't have the background or the kind of applicant pool to, to really be super choosy, but I'd say, uh, you know, folks that are, that are FFT one got S290. I think you absolutely could compete for, for GS fours and fives on modules, you know, call those, call those captains and talk to them and express interest and, and see where it goes. Um, it's definitely not a deal breaker, but you know, once we start looking at the perm jobs, I think, you know, most of our folks in that perm, perm five level are, you know, they're probably crew boss, IC five, Heckum, you know, they've got another cool qual in there. Maybe they're faller one or something. Um, we just had a, a GS six leave for a promotion in Alaska and she was a uh, task force IC four as a GS six. And, you know, Jeez. I, I was, yeah, man, I was a, a GS six on, on, um, on several type one modules for quite a while as a task force leader, RX B two as a, as a GS six. So, um, you know, it's not uncommon to see folks that have kind of found, found that position and realized that the hours are good. The assignments are incredible and, and they're not going anywhere cause they're getting tons of training opportunities. So, um, you know, I don't want to be discouraging like, hey, you got to be super qualified up to, to get on a module, but um, to start competing for the kind of middle management and up jobs, I'd say, you know, absolutely single resource boss or better will we'll get you get a foot in the door. I got you, man. And you guys are looking to pick up a couple folks this year? Yeah, actually, we just um, region two is doing some some standardization of the of the high complexity hand crew, which is what what we fall under. And so two of our temp jobs are getting converted in perms. So next year will be six perms and four temps. So I'm going to have at least two new, new folks into, into perm jobs this year. And, you know, we'll see what happens with the temp jobs, but yeah, next year I'm, I'm hoping we are sitting stacked. We'll see. Nice, man. So what, uh, what else makes your program unique as far as like, uh, everything that you guys do? Why, why, why do we want to come to Columbine? Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely like, you know, step one, totally want to sell the module program in general. Like there are a lot of great ones out there and a lot of great spots. And, and what I've been describing in, in terms of what our day-to-day looks like is going to be really similar for those programs too. But, um, absolutely. I, I, you know, got a lot of good things to say about this place. I've, I'd been trying to get a job here for a while, putting in apps and competing, but not getting in. And, you know, even with the quals we were just talking about, I'm putting in for like laterals to get here and competition was stiff and it took me years to make it happen. So, um, but for folks that are looking at us, I'd say, you know, I kind of mentioned it already, but you know, living in Durango is a, is a super, super solid place for like work-life balance. It's a fun town. There's tons to do in town and out in the mountains. And then, um, you know, which to me is super important at this point in my career, like I'm not going to you know, a duty station somewhere in the middle of nowhere, I don't want to work just for a promotion to me that that work life balance is huge. So 
um, you really get that in a good way in, in Durango. So there's that. Uh, but in terms of the job itself, I can't really think of a better place for a wildland fire module because uh, being parked on the San Juan, um, you know, I've worked in a lot of different places and I've taken assignments in a lot of different places. But this place, more than most, is super progressive in terms of both managing wildfires. So, you know, getting new lightning starts in remote places. And, and the first question isn't, you know, how quickly can we suppress it? It's, hey, should we take a look at managing this and growing it, which is is what we do. So having FMOs and AFMOs and district rangers that are into that is incredible. And, you know, there's a ton of support for it. And and B, in the shoulder seasons, this the San Juan, I'm pretty sure almost every year sets the bar for acres burned for prescribed fire too, which is another thing we haven't talked about really today, but that modules do focus a ton on. So if, um, you know, we've always got the, the national availability and all the assignments that, that, that come out of that, but having a home unit that's super progressive with burning and managing is, is incredible. How many acres do you guys usually put in a year as far as uh, RX activity? Oh man, that's a great question. I think this year we, this district did seven grand, the other districts did eight to 10. So definitely in the 20,000 plus range right now. Holy crap, man. That's yeah. a lot. That's a ton. Yeah, we, we do okay. So, and as far as like the whole wildland use or wildfire use thing, I mean, I know it's called a bunch of different things, um, wildland fire management, wildfire management, uh, whatever. As far as like uh, implementing programs to use fire, introduce fire into the ecology for like a beetle killer or something like that. I mean, do you guys work with uh, your local foresters for that purpose at all? Yeah. So, you know, um, the beetle kill thing definitely is, it is an issue here, uh, especially in our higher country. I've seen it a bit, but there, um, man, that, and I guess it kind of goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about. But when we, you know, we've managed a couple on the forest this year. And when that happens, we're, we're rolling it all out. Like the, the forest will order a, um, like a type one PIO that person's, um, we've had a couple of them come down this year. Those folks are, bringing in everybody in terms of the, the local community, the, yeah, the forestry side of the program, the range side of the program. Um, like they're the stakeholder, the success with the stakeholders here is huge. I think, you know, being close to communities that have been dealing with fire for a long time, you don't get to just go out and put smoke in the air and not expect a, a ton of phone calls. So, um, they've definitely done the background and the legwork to, to make that those relationships work, um, to the point now that I think, um, like the, the grant money and the funding that comes in to help us with, uh, with burn and a ton of it's coming from like Rocky mountain elk foundation. You know, it's, it's not just fire for fire's sake and making acres black. Like there's ecological objectives that are at play and being considered across the board. And it's, it's cool to have FMOs that can have those conversations. You know, these are, you know, ex hotshot soups, but they can still talk the, the fire ecology game and, and mean what they say. And it, it's cool to be a part of that. That's awesome, man, because I think fire introduction is, you know, critical to our ecology, but also, you know, that's conservation at its finest, man. You're improving habitat for future generations, and I think that we've kind of lost uh, some of that perspective that fire is a critical part of the ecology with this whole turn to suppress, 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 like you were saying earlier. So I definitely appreciate the program that you guys have. Yep, and I, and I, the more forests we can turn on to it, the better. You know, the, the Lincoln hadn't really you know, done a lot of that managed fire in a while. And we got down there and we, we did a good job for them. They said, Hey, you know, 
now having seen success from this, we're going to look at it every time. So, you know, it, it's, I guess it's a little cheesy to think about, but I totally feel like it's, it's my job to promote both module programs and just that work that we do getting fire on the landscape and being able to have those conversations. I think having that kind of fire science, fire ecology background from school and, and my jobs in the past definitely helps me be able to sit at the table with those folks and, and have those conversations, but then, you know, shift gears and be able to talk to the division soup in a way that makes sense to him too. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, folks are looking down the road, like where fire's going and where they should be taking their careers. Like, yeah, for sure. Get the suppression background, but know that, you know, I think the future is in, is in managing fire and accepting the reality that it's, it's going to be out there and, and we need to know how to do it in the smart way. Absolutely, man. Work smarter, not harder. That's for sure. Um, also, you know, I, th- I think that there's been a big shift in public pers- uh, public perception as far as wildland fire use goes. So I, I definitely think that we're making some headway on that and getting more support from the public as to putting fire on the ground instead of suppressing everything. So, Yep. And it's it's a lot of like I touched on the, the PIO work, man, getting the word out and, and having those talking points, putting smoke in the air, but having a story that goes with it and like the San Juan, every one of these burns we do, it's got the Facebook pages that are getting, you know, thousands and thousands of clicks because we're putting actually like well-produced videos together with interviews and talking points and, and, and selling it. If you're not telling the story, you're, you're you know, you're really kind of short-sighted on the whole thing, I think. That's task purpose and end state, dude. Yeah, you got to have yep. that. Definitely got to... Uh yeah, change the public perception. I think that uh, it's it's we got our work ahead of us, of course, but uh, definitely it's making some progress. So, yeah, but you look at a place like you know Florida. Every day is a burn day. They you know region eight and nine are getting ninety nine percent of our prescribed fire acres, and it's because they put smoke in the air every day. They've got the support down there to do it. It's it's a weird concept out west, but and it's obviously different fuels and a little more complex. But you know the models there. There's something to follow. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, there's also, you know, everywhere you go, I'm sure there's going to be some sort of issues with uh, sensitive species or a certain arc site or anything like that. But it's up to you guys to mitigate those problems. And that's something else that you guys provide as well. Yep, absolutely. Well, nice, man. I think we uh, pretty much hammered this one home. So uh, do you got anything else to add? I mean, I think you think that's a tie point or? Yeah, no, I dig it. Yeah, that's um. I really appreciate you giving me the chance to get on and and kind of spread the gospel. I I drank the Kool Aid. I'm trying to get more people into it. <laughs> well, uh, it's kind of cool for me too because um, being operational with uh, you know, hotshot crews, hell attack crews, or engines or whatever for most of my career, it's just something that I don't know really about too much about either. So it's very informative to me as well. Yeah, there's um. You know, it's if if you if you're looking to get a hold of us for jobs and stuff or more info, absolutely down to to provide that. I'd say, um, you know, the the NWCG Wildland Fire module, like Google that, you'll get the contact list for every module in the country. Like, make phone calls, ask folks, go visit them. You know, consider the jobs. I I, I don't know many people that have found the the module world to be anything less than than you know, challenging and satisfying and, and a super fun way to spend a summer. Nice, man. And so where can we find you guys on the old socials? Well, excellent question. We're, um, Columbine module itself, not in the Graham game just yet. You can find me, John Paul Freeman on Instagram, and I do a, a little bit of work for the module that way, but, um, San Juan national forests, uh, Facebook page. We've also got 
the module has its own web page on the San Juan site. Um, maybe I can get you to throw that link up. Oh, um, that's got links to my contact info. It's got our outreaches for both for perm jobs, temp jobs, and detailer opportunities. So if folks are looking to come out with us, forms to fill out, um, contact info to get a hold of me to, to make stuff happen. Awesome, man. I'm pretty sure people are going to be pretty interested after hearing this. So, uh, tie-in point, end of the show, what I usually like to do is uh, give the opportunity for you to give a, a shout-out to a homie, hero, mentor, anybody like that, man. So, who's your homie, hero, mentor? Oh, yeah. Great great question. Um, man, it, it'd be a long list if I just kept going. Uh, got to throw one out to Dave Price. That, that guy gave me my first job ever in, in Grand Junction, Colorado in 2001, and I wouldn't be here without him. Um, and then just module leaders and FMOs from, from, from jobs past that have kind of formed kind of my perspective on leadership and get me where I am. And, you know, that got me to drink the Kool-Aid, um, Eric Allen, Jim McMahill, Jason Lahan, Ron Steffens, Jordan Black, Rob Winkler, Kelly Boyd. Thanks guys. Appreciate everything you did. Hell yeah, man. Well, Hey dude, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your experience, man. It's uh, definitely an interesting program that you guys got over there and I look forward to seeing some more stuff from uh, your uh, socials there. Absolutely. Appreciate the, uh, the opportunity, man. Enjoy your winter. <laughs> you too, man. Take care. Yep. We'll catch you later. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there we go. Episode number 18 is in the books. What the f*** is a WFM with John Freeman from Columbine WFM? John, dude, thanks for coming on the show and uh, sharing what a WFM actually does because not a lot of people know. And not a lot of people know how to get onto that. So I'm definitely going to post all those links that you uh, sent me in the show notes. So for those of you that are listening and interested in getting on there, you've got the pretty much uh, the full layout of what they do, what is expected and how to get picked up with those uh, with uh, those guys. And uh, yeah, just uh, check out the show notes and I'll post all those links. John, once again, thanks, man. Also want to say thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, Keep posting on Instagram and tagging us. I definitely want to share your story and share the word of the firefighters on the ground. And uh, make sure you guys are keeping up with each other. It is that winter time. This is when stuff gets hard. So make sure you guys uh, keep in touch with your other family, your fire family. Make sure everybody's doing good. So anyways, guys, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Peace.